Church. I have the pleasure of reading scripture today. If you'd like to follow along, please go to Philippians 2, 1 through 8. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourself. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for your your generosity and your partnership here. We'll make sure that this is expedited in its sending and sharing. Thank you, Marion. You heard our reading from Philippians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can turn to it. We're also going to move around a little bit. We'll be in the book of Job for a little bit as well. Uh, this morning, we are starting a new teaching on sin. Da, da, da. I grew up where sin was like a big deal. We talked about it all the time. And it was a very narrow understanding of sin. Sometimes that makes me shrink away from things like I would be happy to never talk about those things in the same exact way again. Because I did not find the way that I was handed an understanding of sin to be very generative. Like it did not lead me to wide open spaces of love and affection for God. What it did was make me really scared and feel a lot of shame. Different between guilt and shame. So today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about we're going to begin to talk about what's known as like the seven deadly sins or the seven vices i will say i will admit up front that there's not like a verse in the bible that says and now here are the seven sins you should avoid if you avoid these you will be good to go tradition gives us these sins in fact we've numbered them differently over time there used to be eight but some of those collapsed into others And so now we have seven. And I want to see, we did this in our study on Thursday, how we feel, how our memories are working for what we think the seven deadly or mortal sins or vices might be. So let's just try it out here. We only need to get seven, so I'll just count to seven. I think I can do that. And let's see if we can name all of the sins. And uh, let's go for it. So somebody start us off. Oh, you heard gluttony? Someone said the Super Bowl. Which may or may not hold multiple of the sins within it. Uh, Ruthie, did you have your hand up, babe? Ruthie's my daughter. I don't call everybody babe. (laughs) Cursing. (laughs) We could put that underneath one. Uh, We've only got one so far. Ruby? Greed. So we have gluttony and greed. Pride. Mark? Say it again. Avarice. What does avarice mean? We've got greed. Okay. Avarice and greed. Those can go together. Judah. Sloth. Yes. Sloth. Lust. Everyone knew lust, but no one was like, I want to be the first one to say lust. 
And envy? We've met, we're missing one, right? Did, did someone say anger and I just didn't count it? Anger or wrath? Yeah, those are the seven. Does anybody have a favorite? Come on now. Some of these are really fun. Yeah, so these are the seven. Pride, lust, anger, greed, gluttony, sloth, envy. Y'all did great. Uh, I mean, if great is knowing all of the sins really well. Do y'all know their antidotes? Let's, let's go through those, right? No, we'll get to those as we go through. Um, now, often when I was handed this idea of sin, part of what came with it was a, like, here's what not to do. These are the things to not do. And a lot of these involve things that I really like, right? So, like, greed might in fact be this really inverted understanding of what it means to have what we need. It's just as sort of like a perverted or an excessive understanding of that. Or lust, like, right, we love connection. We desire connection with one another. But what happens when that connection for another turns into a consumption of an object instead of a person? Or gluttony, uh, we'll talk about that one too. I love Anybody love food? Jose, what did y'all make this weekend? Like you had your, your meal at your community dinner. It brought me to a deep sense of love and affection for the world that God has made that food can be this good. Is that gluttony? Well, we'll talk about it. I didn't go to Jose's house, so I can't say. We had red beans and rice, which was fantastic, but not near what happened over there. Okay. Today, we're going to talk about pride. Now, here's what I want to say at the start about these sins. And, and I'll say this every week. We are made as desiring creatures, hungry and thirsty. And each time we talk about one of these sins, what I'm not saying is that your job here is to just like tamp it down and repress it and pretend you never, ever have desired anything in your life. What it means to be alive in this world with all of its brokenness and all of its complications is that our desire tends to find channels that lead us into places of what the Bible calls death. And the point of talking about these sins is to potentially dig new channels for desire to flow toward their true ends. It is not about turning yourself off about sort of right repressing all of these urges, but it's about redirecting them. Now, sin, if you've been with us for any length of time, you've seen this drawing, memorize this drawing, take it deep within you, because this is my understanding of what we would call the wages of sin. So Paul talks about the wages of sin in the book of Romans. And the wages of sin is what? Death, everyone said with a lot of gusto. But like, even in the early story in Genesis, whenever the serpent tells the first humans, like, what did God say would happen if you eat this fruit? And they say, like, we're going to die. And the serpent says, you're not going to die. We don't fully understand what it means when death is invited in as a consequence or a wage for certain actions. So what we've said around here is sin is that which breaks our most meaningful primal connections. And what I want you to think about that as we move through each of these seven sins, where does that break happen? How do you understand it to be happening? And restoration, sort of the anecdote to these sins, should in fact heal 
those broken connections. So there are four at least that I talk about a lot involving sin, that, that sin breaks the connection between you and God, sort of primal connection, breaks the connection between you and your other, whoever that other is, between you and the rest of humanity, between you and creation, the created order. I loved what Lisa said at the beginning of the service, that sort of like looking and lifting out, right? There's more than just you. And somehow we are situated in the world that God has made, tended to, and calls good. And yet we don't really feel at home in this world in the way that God intended. And then that last break is often the most intimate and hardest to name, which is the break within you and yourself. You no longer recognize yourself. You don't understand. Paul says, like, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I do, I don't want to do. What a mess. So this is sin. And today we're going to talk about pride as it relates to this sin. Now, here's the thing about pride is it actually feels more like a virtue these days. This is true, right? There's a reason for this. But if there are any of these sins that is particularly Christian to name, it's pride. In most of the lists that have happened over time, pride sort of stands at the beginning of each of these lists. It's understood as like the root or the core, and the rest of these sins and dysfunctions, disordered desires, they sort of spring out off of that. And there are all kinds of reasons for it. Uh, part of what I believe has happened, though, is in our own understanding of, of Christianity or religion... We take certain things as like just givens, like pride is a virtue. It's, it's a little bit of a given, which is why self-righteousness is such an annoyingly common trait among church folks. Like we figured it out. Now we've got a real reason to be prideful. We got all the questions right on the exam. It ends up with things like this. This is how I was taught to share the story of Jesus with the world. As you go up to any random stranger at the metro stop, and they're stuck there, they can't get away because they're waiting for the train, and so you can walk up and talk to them. And you can say to them, if you died today, would you go to heaven? Which is like, the it's my favorite thing to hear when I'm waiting for the train. <laughs> right, and you sort of get the response from that person not expecting the question. And then your follow-up is supposed to be some version of letting me, a stranger, explain why you are a sinner. And then you get to go through and outline all the ways that they've sort of broken the moral code that God has given us and how they've lost access to heaven. But, it, but you've got the answer for how to get them into the bonus round of life known as heaven. And it sort of works on that reward and punishment thing. And part of what's happening here is it understands sin and salvation as it relates to each of us only. The goal of the Christian life in this story is to get me out of here into the good place. It understands the work of faith as an incredibly individualistic pursuit. Most of the Bible is written to communities. There are a few letters in the New Testament that are written to individuals, but most of the rest of the thing are written to communities of faith whether it's the people of Israel or whether it's the early church or whether it's those first followers. And yet most of the ways that we understand faith are how does it affect me and how do I fix me so that I can be right with God? 
and ignores all of the social relational dynamics. It assumes that the breaker, the cleavage, the wages of sin only have to do with you and God and nothing else matters. And if you heal that, then you fixed the problem. In fact, once you fix the problem, pride is no longer an issue. So that's the church's version of pride. Brian, do we have a screen anymore? I just looked behind me and realized we might have one in a minute. Oh, there it is. I want to show you the next slide if we get there. Brian, you're going to have to advance them for a little bit. There you go. Uh, do you all know what this is? I call it an anatomy of a, a me device. M-E. Somebody hold up your me device. Come on, you've all got one. Yeah. Can I borrow yours for a second, Theo? I will not, I will not send a text to anybody without permission. Um, yeah, so one of the things that uh, I am aware of is th- these, these things are, are relatively new in our lives. Um, but if you look on the back, it has a camera, right? And this camera is like a pretty impressive piece of technology. I've talked with Tom Harris, who's worked on lenses his whole life, and we've chatted about like the brilliance of what's happening inside the camera system of a phone, how they got all of this in that little piece. The first iPhone came out a little over a decade ago, and when it came out, um, there was no camera on the other side of the screen. It actually took four iterations of the phone before they realized, you know what, I bet you people would really like to look at themselves even more than they already do. What if you could make a mirror that just followed you around all of the time? And so I'm, I'm sort of being cheeky here, but I also have a, I have a deep and abiding concern with the way that our principal precious objects that we carry with us, like you panic more when you leave this at home than when you leave your children at home. I know because I've done it. This thing is perfectly calibrated to make you obsessed with yourself. Intentionally designed so that you don't leave it. And part of what it's giving you in the interface, and this is like this has been worked out at like Stanford Labs around social cognition, the way that we are wired, is it turns, it's like a perfect mirror. And the screen, the camera on the front helps you understand how that works. We know, for instance, that like, you know, as soon as you take a picture with your front camera on that phone, it immediately adjusts it for perspective and distortion. It's doing all kind of subtle things to present back to you a version of yourself that will be a little bit more pleasing. There are apps that now become so popular to tune your face up that like plastic surgeons are having requests to be turn people into the versions that their phone is telling them that they are. Uh, they're, they're traps. And be careful with them. I'm very serious. Be careful with what these things can do to us. They can invert the self in a way that is really dangerous. Here is what pride looks like. Let's go to the next slide. If we can. Yeah. Pride makes it so that the only thing we see is ourselves. This is part, like, this is exactly what happens with the phone in front of most of us, is that it just kind of loops back around. I will say, I am exhausted of myself. 
And I know that some of you are too. Just exhausted of the self-curating of your life, of the presentations that make sure that you look like you are successful and you have it together, of the posting of a Bible verse you haven't believed in years, but you put it on top of a picture of a meadow because you wanted everyone to know that you were thinking the right Christian thoughts. That Like this sort of creating and sustaining the self is exhausting. But it is the work of pride. This obsession... It can lead to all kinds of distortions and perversions. Now, some of us are like, oh, we're really aware of the way that pride is foundational to our culture, to our existence. We call it good things like virtue. Part of what's happened, though, with our sort of uh, nurturing of pride as a value is that we have forgotten that we are not self-made. Part of what it's led to is the current political climate that we find ourselves in. So let's go to the next one. Pride is the lesson of Trump. And all the air leaves the room. There's a book that I've I've read last year that I loved. It was called Nobody Hates Trump More Than Trump. And it was this brilliant look at the conditions that created a person that can be the embodiment of pride as a sin. Here's the problem, though. When we live in a world that worships celebrity, and then we we turn sort of the, the presidency into a version of celebrity, and then that person has the microphone for every every earphone you've ever put on in your life, and in the car, and on the screen, and all the, the waiting room at the doctor's office, is that you are surrounded by pride as a virtue. And it's exhausting. Everything feeds into this story. I was listening to an interview, reading an interview by um, David Shields, who wrote the book I just mentioned, Nobody Hates Trump More Than Trump. And, and the book sort of looks at his early life and his, his father, Fred, and like the, the poor guy did not get hugged or celebrated except for achievements. Like America created this situation. It's not like we accidentally stumbled into it. We've, we've reaped what we sow. And the interviewer asked the question of Shields. He goes, in all of this, who do you hate the most? And so Shield says, it's exactly the wrong question. It is the question that assumes that the hatred deserves to be pushed outward rather than a self-reflection inward about the parts of us that have nurtured a world that makes this possible. To be obsessed with the self is a virtue. To always be nurturing our own, because here's the thing. We carry around boatloads of shame. Shame is like our our sort of default mode a lot of the time. And so when shame is present, we will send all of our forces to militarize against it. I don't like feeling like this, so I'm going to put up walls and personas and flexes and new cars and whatever I can do to not feel this way anymore. Next slide. Pride is also the lesson of Job. So the book of Job is probably our oldest book in the Bible. It doesn't appear in the beginning. Our Bible is not necessarily lined out chronologically. But it's probably one of the most ancient ones that was written. Because it deals with like a very fundamental problem that no one had to be told how to think about. Why does this kind of garbage happen to people? 
But it's really not just about that, but it's about more than that. Let me quickly tell you what the book of Job is doing. If you remember, then this will be a review. If you haven't read the book in quite a while, then this will be new information for you. The book of Job's 42 chapters or so long, and it, it's sort of bookended by this something called prose or narrative, where God and the adversary, we would understand as like the Satan character arguing with each other about how good this Job character is. Like, have you considered my servant Job? The God character asks, which I hope God never says to anyone. Have you considered my servant John Jay? Uh, because what happens later is the, the adversary says, like, well, Job is so very good and righteous because you've given him everything that he needs or could ever want. If you take all that away from him, watch what happens. So Job ends up losing all of his fortune. He ends up losing his family. It's death and destruction. It's sadness. And, and then the story takes a turn into poetry. For like 30-something chapters, it's just poetry. And it's Job sitting down in pain. And we, we see him, like, he's got sort of wounds and scabs, and he's scraping at his skin with broken pottery because it hurts so bad. And then it's the conversation, right, between Job and Job's friends, and they crying out to God. And here's what's at stake. Job says, all of this bad stuff has happened to me. I am a righteous person, so therefore God is not just. That's the like A plus B equals C, right? Job says, I'm a good dude. I've got the receipts to prove it. But all of this garbage has happened. And so therefore the God of the moral universe is not doing his job. Job's friends say, well, all of this bad stuff has happened to you, Job. And we know that God is righteous and just, which means you must be a scoundrel. And then this is the argument for chapter after chapter in the book of Job. And then in chapter 38, finally, God speaks. And and at this point, we're thinking all of us who have suffered in suffering that we feel is unjust, open to the chapter and say, God, tell us why this happens. Tell us why I am feeling the way that I feel right now. Nurture my pride or my shame. And so God finally answers. God has been silent in the argument and God speaks. And God says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely, you know, and on and on verse after verse, poetic line, answering poetic line about how it's not about Job. Pride can infect us at the point of our greatest, like, this is what I can contribute to the world. This is how I can save things. But pride can also move in when we just simply are so obsessed with ourselves that we can't see anything else. And the book of Job is a story about one man's suffering that creates one man's obsession with himself. The early church, fathers and mothers, said that the effects of sin, what it does to us, is it takes our bodies and it bends them. It curves them in on the self. Like, quite literally, like, our eyes are are positioned in a great way to be in relationship with other people. I can see you. They look outward. But with sin, our entire form gets bent. Our back leans over and we can only see the self. Right now, y'all are all looking out. But just for a moment, like... Imagine if all you could ever see and consider and be obsessed with was just this, like, this self. 
Suffering does that. Suffering islands us. The wages of sin is a kind of death. And suffering can drive us away from connections. We seek justification. We seek meaning. We blame God. We blame our friends. We blame the moral order of the universe. Sometimes just really garbage things happen. And so God's answer to Job is God's anecdote to pride because Job it becomes sort of the epitome of pride in this book. It's not a way that we normally think about the book of Job, which seems to be about suffering, but it's really about the way that suffering turns us in on ourselves. And so God grabs Job by the scruff of the neck and lifts him up and says, look around you. There is more here than just you. Your suffering has made you obsessed with the self. But I am concerned with much more. It is an invitation to an expansive understanding of Job's place in the world. Job does, in fact, answer and says in chapter 40, this response, See, I am of small account. What do I have left to say? And God speaks some more. And then in chapter 42, Job answers the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this who hides knowledge without counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me, which I didn't know. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you will declare to me, says the Lord. I have heard by the hearing of my ear but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I, the language here in the Hebrew is a little bit obscure, but I despise myself, it says, or I count myself of little accord. I am less obsessed with myself than I was before, and I am consoled in dust and ashes. The language there for consoled is the word nacham, which is the word for womb. Job is entering back into the primal space of connection where all is okay because he feels himself held and known by God. I am consoled in dust and ashes. Next slide. Which takes us to the lesson of Jesus we heard in the letter to the church in Philippi. Of all the people who've walked this earth who could feel a sense of swelling pride, who could answer the question, who are you, with I am everything. It would be Jesus the Christ. And yet we find here this witness and example that we are supposed to step into and live within, which is one of deep humility. And it is humility. Hear me. Humility or humbleness is not to think that you are worse than you are, It's not to sort of enter into a kind of self-abasement. Oh, woe is me. Humility is just to think about the self a whole lot less and to think about the rest of this world a whole lot more. So you heard in Philippians, Bree's reading for us. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. The word for conceit is a great word. Echinodoxos. It means empty glory. Absolutely that's what pride feels like. 
This sort of burnishing up an image with no substance within. If you have to tell somebody you're a blank, that means you probably aren't. Right? If you have to tell somebody you're the Messiah, then it means you probably aren't. Jesus waits for others to come to this conclusion. It says, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourself. Let each not look to your own interest, but to the interest of others. The same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Apparently, this is what Jesus is like. Though in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself, obedient to death, even death on a cross. And because Jesus is not grasped for this equality, but humbles himself, lowers himself, makes himself smaller, it says that because of this, God raises him up or exalts him. And we get to the reversal that always happens in the Gospels, which is that when we try to prove the thing ourselves, when we try to create the conditions ourselves, when we try to do the thing ourselves with our own oomph and gumption and bootstraps and pull them up thing, that we find ourselves humbled. Those who are proud, God humbles. And those who are humble, God lifts up. That's, that's the movement. And Jesus lives it. There is nothing quite so humiliating as death on a cross. It's the worst. And it's already enough to imagine Jesus, this human one, this teacher, going through this. But I always try to carry forward in my own imagination what it means that God goes through this kind of humiliation. And it is a bit overwhelming. Because God deserves better. Because God should prove. Because God should come on a lot stronger, right? Like all of those sort of things. But God is gentle and willing to suffer with us. This is the Jesus move. This deep concern with the world. With creation, with neighbors, with enemies. And this deep contentment with the self. Humbleness is not to bring a certain kind of misery to your inner being, but to know that you are okay inside. Psalm 131, I believe, Jeanette, you might have brought it to our attention in, uh, in our study together. I'll read it for you. It's a very short psalm. Hey, if you want to memorize a psalm, Psalm 131 is a good one to memorize because it's only three verses long. It says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. That lifted up language is the language of pride. My eyes are not too haughty. I do not occupy myself with things too great or marvelous for me, but... I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, my soul is like the weaned child that is with me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time on and forevermore. This kind of inner contentment is what makes it possible to be humble in the face of a world obsessed with burnishing of the image. To know that you are okay. Let's go to the next one. One more. 
So then the question, are you content with yourself? Are you at rest and repose inside? Do you feel a quiet kind of dignity in your center that you've been made in the image of God and been saved and sustained by the power of God? Do you feel at home? Or do you feel exposed and vulnerable in a way that you continually try to throw up flares and layers to protect you? Right. So if sin separates creates a kind of wound, really deep and primal wound. And pride is like building a fortress around that wound so nothing can touch it. And what Christ offers is a softening of the space of pain so that we might connect with the rest of the world through that pain. Let's go to the next one. Contentment is, in fact, connection. Pride is obsessed with the self. Humility is concerned for the other. And in that concern, it leads you back to the space that you have felt so alienated from. All of a sudden, you don't have to continually recreate your own identity because you are in community with people who tell you who you are. And then you tell them who they are. And all of a sudden, you're relieved from the obsession of the self. Pride's cure is humility, which is the inviting of a wider perspective, of saying if I could become smaller, I might be able to sense a greatness. If I can recognize, enjoy this world as we find it, then I can see God's creation. Let's go to the last one, which is the practice piece. We're going to move into a time of singing here in just a moment and prayer, but I want to invite you this week, this day, like maybe even after the service, we're going to be in the lobby space uh, trading off tamales. But find someone and practice tuning your own affections toward them, your own obsessions toward them, away from the self. Yes, I know that each of us are carrying a lot with us, things that we would like to have fixed, things that we don't want to show anybody else, We have all kinds of concerns for the self. But maybe just for today, let's turn our eyes outward. Allow God to lift us and see that there is more than just me or you. Being here together is a great place to practice this. Being here in body with friends and family Maybe even with enemies. I don't know how long we've all known each other here for, but maybe even that. It's a place to work out pride by the root. You will find in that effort, just like we practiced at the very beginning of the service, that blessing is from without. That God's grace and mercy is on offer. Not a thing to brag about, but a thing simply to receive in the same way you receive the bread and the cup. So friends, the love of God is moving towards you through one another. And this is the gift that you are not, in fact, alone. God is concerned about you, yes, but much more than just you. And is inviting you in to an expansive vision. Would you pray with me? God, give us the eyes of Christ.
so that we might just see less of ourselves. I confess, God, that I'm, I'm a bit tired of trying to maintain image or perfection or projection. I would rather just rest in what you have spoken over me and what your people have spoken over me and that that would just simply be enough. For all of those who have been humiliated by those whose pride has been weaponized, bring them comfort like a mother comforting her children. And all of those who are haughty in spirit, would you bring humility? And in the pain of that humility, would you invite an openness to receive the gift of your community, of your church, where we might find out who we really are, beloved and home and whole. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, amen. Amen.